On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing very well, Tim. How are you today? I just want to say happy holidays, happy new year to you, your family, all of our listeners. Thank you. Same to you and to the listeners. And Lance, let's turn the page. This case comes to us from the private investigations for the missing case file. We were contacted by some of Archer Ray Johnson's family members who asked us to take a look at the case, maybe do a podcast or so on it. And this is the first episode in a multi-part series that we will do on the disappearance of Archer Ray Johnson. And we have a great discussion with our tireless researcher, Jennifer Amell. She put together this document that depicts Archer Ray Johnson's life, uh, the, the days leading up to his disappearance. You mentioned he, he disappeared from Brooklyn, Washington. That's a small town in the Pacific Northwest. He was born on April 26, 1943, so that made him 42 when he went missing in 1986, April 1st, 1986. Archer Ray Johnson was 5'9 and 175 pounds when he went missing. He is a Caucasian male, brown hair, brown eyes, and he has a mole on his right cheek and a large surgical scar on his left arm. If you have any information in Archer's disappearance, please contact the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department at 360-249-3711. And we really hope that you take something out of this conversation that we had with Jennifer. Again, this was from the private investigations for the missing case files, the nonprofit started by Bruce Maitland in honor of his daughter, Brianna Maitland, who has been missing since March 19th of 2004 from Montgomery, Vermont. And he is using all the resources he can to help other families of missing loved ones investigate the disappearance when law enforcement is unavailable or unable to. That's right. And make sure to check out that site. There's a blog there, too. It's investigationsforthemissing.org. And make sure to follow their social pages. They update quite frequently. Okay. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Jenna Mel, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, not buried in snow, but 
have a dusting of snow, as Lance reminded me. I mean, we're we're up here in New England, and we understand that uh, a dusting and buried means very different things between uh, your state and our state. I appreciate the time that you're taking out of your day and all of the work that you did in the Archer Ray Johnson case. Fantastic uh, job putting this document together for us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really excited to bring this case to uh, the podcast today. This is a case that came to us from private investigations for the missing. Archer Ray Johnson's granddaughter, Taylor Johnson, actually reached out to PIs for the missing. She is a a listener of Missing Maura Murray and Crawl Space and had heard about uh, the nonprofit we work with there and uh, reached out to us. I think not, not necessarily to have a podcast made, but just to maybe get some advice on how to move forward on this cold case that's been cold for going on 34 years now. And how were you able to compile this information, Jen? This is great research. I completely agree, Lance. And uh, were you able to speak with Archer's family? Yes, I was. The family was like super open to speaking about the case. We've had a few conversations over the last couple of weeks, and they actually made available to me the original police reports and witness statements that were taken and written just a few days to a few weeks after Archer went missing back in the uh, late 80s. So that was a wealth of information, and I'm glad that we have access to it. That's incredible. Is that something that they would give to private investigators who work on the case too and, and have given to them? I believe that if a private investigator were to get involved in the case, that they would be privy to the same documents that I have. Um, it's definitely... It definitely showcases that the police were attentive, at least in the first few days um, of Archer's disappearance, and they did do the legwork. They interviewed a lot of people. Unfortunately, they just weren't able to follow through on any of the the leads that they generated. And it seems like uh, the next generations are uh, certainly willing to try anything, including uh, new mediums like podcasting, which uh, we really appreciate. Uh, that That is really, really cool of them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and we're going to do our best raising the awareness here for Archer Ray Johnson. If uh, you don't mind, I just want to take a minute to go through the basic statistics of him. He has been missing since April 1st of 1986 from Brooklyn, Washington. He is a white male. He was born on April 26, 1943, so that made him 42 years old when he went missing, putting him at, at 77 years old today. Five foot, nine inches, 175 pounds. He had a Black Hills gold ring. He had brown hair, brown eyes. Archer had a mole on his right cheek and a large surgical scar on his left arm. And so I take it this information came from his daughter and granddaughter about uh, how Archer is a uh, was such a hardworking and hard-living outdoorsman and a logger. Nikki does remember him as being like a really loving father who is charismatic and like kind of happy-go-lucky. And he was an avid outdoorsman. He made his living scavenging for wood um he worked i think some odd jobs here and there as a logger um he also was a fern picker and a bark peeler as well bark peeling yeah and i've never heard of that the only thing i did look this up and like couldn't really get a definitive answer on why you might peel bark other than using it for tinder like if he did sell uh split logs for firewood and stuff like maybe the bark was used as a kind of tinder thing the ferns i'm not sure. And you mentioned that he was a, a loving father, a family man, but he also was a bit of a, a, a ladies man as well, from what I understand. And he did have a bit of a drinking problem. 
Yeah, I mean, his family was was pretty open about this fact. Uh, Archer was married four times, and he had girlfriends in between and stuff. In fact, he was only married to his most recent wife for only five months before he he went missing. Was that something that was deemed suspicious uh, in the investigation? I don't think it was deemed suspicious. He did have a one-night stand with a woman in town right before he went missing, like a few weeks before, but I don't think they thought that his disappearance was connected to that at all. Did he maintain a relationship with his three previous wives? Because his fourth wife, they never got divorced. He went missing during that marriage, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, I actually had the privilege of talking to his third wife, Betty, who is Nikki's mother. Um, And Betty said that they, you know, got divorced, but they maintained a friendship all their lives. Okay. And how many children does he have total between the four women? Um, He has three children from his first wife, two boys and a girl. And then there is Nikki from his third wife, Betty. Okay. And you mentioned he had a little bit of a drinking problem. Was that something that was known throughout town? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Archer had a bit of a reputation as as being, um, now these are not my words, but uh, Nikki's words of being the, the town drunk. And she suspects that's why the police didn't do as much as possible to, to find him um, during the investigation. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But yeah, he did definitely have a reputation of being a drinker. According to his family, his personality would change when he drank. Um, He was never violent toward his wives or any women or any children, but he would go into town, go to the tavern and like start bar fights and stuff. He was kind of just like a rough dude who would goad another man into a fight. And because of that, it seemed like he maybe made some enemies within that area. I could see that um, with uh, especially with Brooklyn, Washington being such a small town. Um, It seems like the census in 2019 has about 3000 people as a population. So it's a very, very small town. Yeah, super small, very rural. Archer didn't actually live in Brooklyn. He lived about, I want to say, 30 miles east and it's like north of Oakville. But I'm assuming that the population wouldn't change too much between between those two towns. And what was uh, Archer's family like? Uh, was he one of many brothers and sisters? Was it abusive in any way? I didn't glean a whole lot of information about the background of the Johnson family. Uh, they were an extremely large family. He had six brothers and four sisters, um, one brother of which will become important to our story later on. But uh, Nikki characterized his family, the Johnsons, as being kind of like backwoodsy people who kept to themselves and worked odd jobs here and there and kind of just like a a rough bunch. Jeez, the population of Oakville is even less. It seems around uh, 690. Oakville will be sort of like a central, like a focal point in our story, too, because um, it was like the nearest gas station. (laughs) between the place where he disappeared and like his residence he and his brother frequented um oakville to buy groceries to you know converse with uh people in town to you know get beer that sort of thing and uh this brother we're speaking of his name was earl yeah earl johnson 
and they were uh, pretty close, these two, Archer and Earl? Yeah, super close from the, from the sound of it. They would work a lot together, either scavenging for wood or working, you know, contract jobs with logging companies in the area. Was that a pretty uh, competitive occupation? Because Tim got me started on the population of Oakville, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, 1990. According to the census, it was 493, but in 1980, it was 537, so it saw a dip in, in its population. Was this something that if you were in Oakville, that's what you did? And again, was it highly competitive? It seems that way. It seems like um, a lot of the young men would sort of vie for these logging positions. I know that there was one young man in town who like came under the tutelage of Archer and Archer kind of like taught him everything he knew about like wood scavenging and logging and bark peeling, I suppose. Um, And then this young man actually ended up taking a job that Archer had wanted so there's a little bit of bad blood there, but, you know, all was forgiven later on. So from that anecdote, it does seem like it was a pretty competitive career. And what's this uh, that Archer seemed to owe some money for? Was it a bar tab or was it a truck or both? The uh, the detective notes say something about unpaid tabs. I think they're in reference to his truck. So I had mentioned that Archer had had a one night affair with this local woman and she they were drinking together and she borrowed his truck and ended up crashing his truck like near his brother's house i believe archer received a new vehicle a pickup truck that was tan in color from this woman's father and he still owed money to him for the truck but i know he had recently acquired the truck so that could be where the money was going toward and this was, um, according to your notes, this was only $50. I know it was back in the 80s, uh, so it was probably a little bit higher in value than... Uh, you don't think that the money for the truck was any reason why something happened to Archer? No, I really don't. I mean, okay. even back in the 80s, that was... I mean, it wasn't... It seems less to us, but it's still like a negligible amount. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard to say... Um, what someone would uh, do for an amount, any amount of money, you know, it's just tough to put yourself in in that position. I think people get killed for a lot of uh, different amounts of money. But this whole situation seems really messy. Was the woman that Archer had the affair with, was she, was she married? I'm not sure if she was married or not. Okay, but that that's kind of odd that uh, that Archer knows her dad too, and even uh, owes money to him. Yeah, again, I'm not like totally a hundred percent on him owing her dad money. The money was going toward the truck in some capacity. Maybe he wanted he needed to do work on the truck to make it operational. Okay. I don't know. But very very interesting point about it being a messy situation, and then thinking about the population of the town and the surrounding towns, just that area. He he's known as, like you said, the the town drunk. He owes money. He's having a, an affair, and also known as a, as a bit of a ladies' man, and been married several times. It just sounds like um, it sounds like the perfect recipe for disaster here, for something to b- boil over. Yeah, it does. Unfortunately, Archer was also involved in a criminal matter with a uh, a neighbor of his. The neighbor was named Fred March, and Fred March had purchased a bunch of land that 
Earl and Arch had uh, been used to crossing in order to scavenge for wood or hunt or whatever, like to, to cross the land freely. But then after this man, Fred March, bought the property, he didn't like the two brothers trespassing on his property. So he put up a gate on this like thoroughfare place. And that really didn't sit well with Arch. So they had a really um, contentious relationship, uh, Fred March and, and Art. And he did end up, I think, allegedly trying to steal some type of satellite from Fred March's house. This all culminated in a, in a court case in which he was charged with trespassing. And strangely enough, this is how small the town is. Arch's ex-wife, Betty, actually got called for jury duty on her ex-husband's wow. indictment. Yeah. He was later acquitted, though. But he sure seems like no stranger to confrontation. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get into the timeline. So on April 1st, 1986, at around 6 a.m., Pat, Archer's wife at the time, said she saw Archer before she left for work. He had allegedly taken a stray dog with him to drop off somewhere because the couple were due to get some new chickens soon. So that I'm assuming the stray dog had been um, in the area and he didn't want that to be a threat to the chickens that they were getting? Yeah, either that or he was like feeding the dog and it might attack the new chickens. Okay. And how is this, uh, how is that detail relevant to his disappearance? Does that place him at a site later on? Well, I think the police were interested in this detail because um, it might point to Archer's travels that morning and like, where he might have gone to like let this dog loose or given the dog to somebody. It, it just paints a fuller picture of what he was doing the day of his disappearance. Right, because when he arrived at Earl's home, he there was no dog, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Earl said that he talked about the dog problem and getting new chickens, but he did not have a dog with him. Okay, so we don't know where the dog went. Uh, we assume the dog was dropped off before uh, Archer went to Earl's. Yeah, if at all. right. So a little after 6 a.m., Arch left home a little north of Oakville, Washington, with the intention of going to his brother Earl's near Brooklyn to harvest some wood. And there's an account from a Mr. Keller that Archer stopped by his store in Oakville between the hours of 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. to buy a case of Schmidt's beer. But apparently that has been uh, sort of questioned by the detectives on the case and they thought maybe Mr. Keller was mistaken on the day. Yeah, it was noted in the police report. Um, I think they just included it just in case. I think based on other witness statements, it seems like Mr. Keller was mistaken on the day. And at around 7 a.m., Archer arrived at Earl's home in Brooklyn, which was reportedly across the street from his girlfriend Rosa Butterack's home at uh, on North River Road near Brooklyn. So after Arch arrived at Earl's house, now I was never able to get an actual address for Earl, but I was able to get an address for his girlfriend, Rosa. And if it was across the street, then we can pretty much pinpoint the area where they were working at that time. But from about 7 a.m. to 11 a.m., Arch and his brother Earl were out cutting wood and loading it into Arch's tan pickup truck. Um, Arch delivered half the wood back to Earl's house, and then he was allegedly going to take the other half of this, I think it was a cord of wood, back to his own home. And we noted earlier that uh, both of them had uh, had drinking problems 
do you assume or is there any proof that they had been drinking uh, while they were doing this this job of, of cutting wood? The family believes it's likely that they were drinking as they were both known to day drink and like start in the morning, go till they passed out at night. There is one detail which we will discuss uh, when we get to his actual disappearance and the abandonment of his truck. And uh, at around 11 a.m., Rosa walked over from her property to Earl's and chatted with Earl and Archer, who were having lunch. And she shared some of the ham that Archer was eating, which is from her witness statement, Jen? Yeah, it, I found that to be a really weird detail. Like, the detective who interviewed her was handwriting this witness statement, but it was verbatim out of Rosa's mouth. So she was not the the one actually writing her statement, but I'm assuming she's just dictating to the detective. And I just, it was a detail that jumped out at me because everything else was so general about what she was doing. She's like, and then I ate Archer's ham. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Maybe, maybe that was just something they did every day. Maybe they had, maybe it was ham for lunch and, you know, she didn't have to think about what she had for lunch that day. Yeah. Could be. Okay, so then she walked back to her own property to find her cows, She and she found out she couldn't lift the bale of hay on her own. So then Rosa walked back over and asked Archer if he would come help her feed the cows. So he helped her and then told her he had to go back home. And when was this? This was just around 11 or a little bit after 11? A little bit after, yeah. She spent a few minutes um, with Earl and Arch as they were eating lunch. Um, and then walked back to walked back over to her own property. I find it strange that she asked Arch to help her instead of Earl, who she was, I guess, casually dating at the time. Just seems strange. And then what's this about Edie Pringle? She apparently was a neighbor, and Rosa asked if Archer ran into her on his way home. Yeah, yeah. So Rosa asked Arch, like, on his way back down Brooklyn Road toward Oakville, which is going eastbound away from Brooklyn, if uh, he saw Edie, I guess, outside or something, that he would ask Edie if uh, she could give Rosa a ride to Raymond, which was southwest of Brooklyn. And this will become important in just a moment. Okay, so Archer left Earl's place at around 1140, driving eastbound back home towards Oakville, correct? Yeah. And is there any indication or any detail or a fact that places Earl still at his place? Because you you had said it was weird that she asked Archer for help and not Earl. I was wondering if maybe Earl had left. No, uh, Earl was still there because about 10 to 15 minutes after Arch left at around like 11.50, 12 p.m., Rosa decided to accompany Earl toward Oakville to cash a check to help Arch pay that $50 tab for his truck. So Rosa's statement said that she decided to go with Earl because she didn't want to be home alone. But she had just asked Archer if to stop by Edie Pringles and ask Edie if she would drive her to Raymond, which is the complete opposite direction from Oakville. So she was trying to go to Raymond, which was west. She decided to go east to Oakville with Earl instead. To cash a check at a, at a particular bank? Yeah, there was a bank in um, in Oakville. But it was Earl's check he was cashing. It wasn't Rose's. Yeah, this is uh, very confusing already. 
uh, when we're talking about all this stuff leading up to um, his disappearance. And and mo- most of this is from Earl and Rosa and Edie, apparently. This is taken directly from Rosa's witness statement. Okay. Um, the detective's report sort of integrated all these witness statements. And then I have the only original witness statement I have is Rosa Buterak's witness statement. Um, everything else was sort of like put together in the uh, final police report. Um, when I spoke to the family, they they remember Rosa being like a very odd duck. Okay, yeah, she's kind of sounds like it so far in in this, but uh, you know, I don't want to cast uh, you know throw any stones yet. But I'm confused in just leading up to his his disappearance, so it seems confusing. Okay, we'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And uh, driving Earl's old green Chevy Nova, Earl and Rosa were traveling eastbound along Brooklyn Road, and about 12.20 p.m., they came upon Archer's tan pickup truck, and the truck sat haphazardly on the right side of the road, its driver's side door ajar. So the timing works out here. If uh, they left 10 to 15 minutes after Archer had left, that would be about 11.50 to noon. Uh, So it was about 20 minutes or so, 20, 25 minutes away that they found his pickup truck. Yeah, that jives um, because it was, I think, like 16 to 17 miles away. And this road, Brooklyn Road, is like half of it is gravel and super bumpy. And even when it does turn to asphalt, I was looking on Google Maps it's just potholes after pothole and very rural. Um, apparently, it does like receive quite a bit of traffic, but it's slow going is my point. Okay, so the truck was on the right-hand side of the road with the driver's side door open, which is on the left-hand side of the truck. So the driver's side door was open towards the road. So he apparently exited the vehicle onto the road as opposed to, say, into the woods. So according to Earl and Rosa, what did they do when they came upon the truck? So they thought it was obviously a bit strange. The truck was like slightly into the road. So, I mean, you could hit it if you weren't paying attention and you were like driving in that lane. And of course, the door was open. So they thought it was a bit strange. But Arch was known to like stop and scout for wood or, you know, stop to take a leak or something like that. So it wasn't totally out of the ordinary that he would have stopped on this road Um, but they didn't get out of their car Um, once they passed the truck they allegedly backed up um, honked and called for Archer out into the woods they didn't receive a reply so Earl pulled his car forward so Rosa could see out of her window into the front seat the driver's side of the truck and she saw a few things in there Um, She saw the keys that were in the ignition, um, a thermos that belonged to Archer, a pair of gloves, and a coffee cup. Okay. And she also reportedly saw a couple of cans of beer on the uh, driver's seat? Yeah. So this is what uh, I was talking about earlier, like if there was any um, indication that they might have been drinking that morning. In the detective's notes, there's a question mark next to the beer can. Um, I know a lot of newspapers that picked up the story after the fact, um, ran uh, a couple things, that there was one beer in the uh, driver's side 
seat that was unopened, that there was two beers, one was opened, one was unopened. So I'm not really sure what is the truth about this, if there was even a beer in there. But allegedly, Earl had given Archer two beers for his journey home. Okay, and it it seems like, assuming that's true, it seems like one of them was open and one of them wasn't. Is that the is that what we're working off of? Yeah, I mean potentially. As good as as anything. Okay, because I, I do think that's interesting and, and maybe a clue if he is doing day drinking and uh, you know had a, had another beer there and didn't take it with him or drink it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it can also speak to his state of mind if he was you know, drunk by that point. I mean, he could have walked out into the woods and gotten lost. Sure. He could have pulled his car over, hopped out real quick to go to the bathroom in the woods, and then, you know, something happens to him from there. Uh, So it is an interesting detail. It's a little unsettling knowing that the day drinking happened nonstop. Again, I feel like this was a situation, unfortunately, that was sort of doomed. I think I think there are a lot of circumstances that were put into place that were just bubbling over at this point. Yeah, totally. I mean, a lot can happen if you are inebriated most of the time. You make enemies or make poor decisions, etc. But yeah, we're just we're just not totally positive on the fact that they were drinking that morning. Okay, and then Rosa reached through the window and shut the truck's door, and so her and Earl continued on their way to Oakville. This next bit of information could be could prove pivotal to the investigation because we have a third eyewitness that is not Earl or Rosa. So there's this man called Jameson. I'm not sure if it's a first or last name, but that's how he's referred to in the police report. So Jameson is traveling on Brooklyn Road between 1 and 2 p.m. And Jameson says that he saw Earl's car. Uh, the detective notes that he described Earl's car as the as the green Chevy Nova, that Earl's car was traveling westbound on Brooklyn Road instead of eastbound, as R- Rosa and Earl had said in their statements. Okay, interesting. So that statement could uh, conflict with uh, what Earl and Rosa told police. Interesting. Yeah, totally. And not only in the direction they were driving, but also the time frame. So he said it was between 1 and 2 p.m. That's almost a full hour or two from Earl and Rosa's statement that that they found the truck at about 1220. Yeah, it's a good amount of time. That's kind of a discrepancy. And then after he saw Earl pass him going back to Brooklyn, that's when he, this guy Jameson came upon Arches truck so that's a third person placing the truck in that vicinity like on that road so maybe the truck was actually there but if earl and rosa are potentially involved in archer's disappearance this would explain them if something happened to archer they wanted to get rid of the truck and stage a disappearance uh both of them would have driven both vehicles down the road, 16 or 17 miles, abandoned the truck. Earl jumps back in with Rosa, and they head back to Brooklyn. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Like, the time frame and, and the way you just laid it out would make sense. I'm curious about Jameson. Did he know Earl previously, or did he know Archer or Rosa? And how did he come to give this statement to the police? Um, I think after the story 
got out that Archer was missing, he came to the police with this um, eyewitness statement. Of course, Jameson knew the Johnsons. The Johnsons were like a pretty notorious family in the area, but I don't think there was any ill will between Jameson and Earl, if that's what you're asking. Okay, so then according to Earl and Rosa, once they got to Oakville, they stopped at the bank to cash the check and they got 50 bucks. Then Earl and Rosa stopped to get gas in Oakville before continuing on to Archer's house just north of town. And when they got to Archer's house, they saw that his gate was closed. So Earl put the $50 in an envelope and tied it to the gate with some string. This is a little, strike you as a little weird, Jen? Yeah, I don't know who travels around with envelopes and string in their car. I certainly don't. But maybe Earl was just one of those people who had everything he ever needed in his car. I spoke to Nikki, Arch's daughter, about this, and she seems to think that the gate wouldn't have been like a locked one, like to keep people out of Archer's property. So it strikes me as odd that Earl tied an envelope to a gate and didn't just get out of the car, push open the gate, and leave the money in a more secure place. Does it strike you as strange that you would leave like cash money? Well, yeah, and, and it's weird that he's the only witness to actually having done that. Um, so I, it makes it questionable in the first place and I, I'm, maybe I'm confused, but why is Earl giving Archer $50? I think his brother just, I mean, Archer just asked Earl if he would help him out and he would pay him back. Okay. It's just, it's just weird because of the, uh, the $50 that he owes. So I guess maybe, uh, Archer was borrowing 50 from Earl to pay his truck. Okay. That's what it seems like. Yeah. Okay. And what... What was the problem with the gate? Why couldn't he just go up to the house? Why Why did he have to leave it right there on the front? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, Yeah, was it locked? I don't think so. I'm not totally positive on that, but his daughter Nikki said that it probably wouldn't have been a locked gate. It wasn't the type of property it was. It was like a cabin type house. Yeah, and you know what else is kind of odd about this is this is after they saw the truck with the door open on the side of the road and no archer. Yeah. I just find that so odd that now they're on their way to his home and now he's not there. So instead of just keeping the cash on them and and starting to identify that this might be concerning, he just kind of goes about his business. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little strange. I'm not sure if they even checked if Arch was back home yet. I guess they assumed if they had seen his truck that he was not home. And then the errands apparently continue. Uh, Earl and Rose left from Archer's. They went to Elma to drop off a chainsaw in need of repair. Okay, my eyebrows go up when uh, when the word chainsaw is mentioned in a mer- missing persons case, but w- where is that from? Yeah, that's true. I I actually didn't even put that together about the chainsaw. But yeah, um, there was a a repair shop in this town called Elma, and they had a chainsaw in need of repair, so they dropped it off to get fixed and then continued onward to a couple other towns. Uh, Allegedly, they went to a town called Brady to pick up potatoes, because that's where you get potatoes. (laughs) And then... Uh, also picked up Earl's eldest daughter back in Elma, and then continued on to McCleary to visit Earl's parents. This might be a little bit 
into the minutia, but do you know what was wrong with the chainsaw? Why did it need to be repaired? Yeah, I have no idea what was wrong with the chainsaw. I don't think I don't think the chainsaw actually jumped out at me so much because they are like loggers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's where my head went to. Yeah. My eyebrows went up and then I was like, "Oh, it's probably super innocent." Yeah. Okay, so then after Earl and Rosa left their parents, they returned to Archer's residence, and that's when they saw that the envelope that Earl said he left uh, at Archer's was uh, was still there. And then Earl decided to take it with him. So as, as we're talking about, uh, that's the only corroboration of that ever happening was from Earl. Yeah, I mean, there's a lack of corroboration because it's just Earl's word that he had left money there in the first place. Was Rosa and the daughter there at that point? Yeah. Okay, Did and did they say that too? We don't have any witness statement from the daughter, at least in the record that I received. Um, so I'm not even sure if she was questioned in this matter. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so why would he put himself back at the at the house if he wasn't going to check on Archer and then pick up the money? I feel like this whole money thing, it was like a a sign or something. I feel like the the money, th- or not a sign, but I feel like it was uh, an excuse. Does that make sense? To go to Archer's? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's Earl uh, saying he was going to lend Archer 50 bucks um, or saying that he tried to. And uh, it, it's it's a little illogical in, in light of what happened, um, I would say. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I don't know, like, if you were making, up, making it up entirely, why you would like go with this sequence of events. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, maybe, maybe it's the day drinking, you know, maybe that, that influenced it, but I'm just thinking like if the, if, if this was an elaboration, if this was made up and he says he put the money there and then he took it back, if he is making this up, why would he even put himself there in the first place? If there's no money there, you know, if there's nothing that's connecting him there. I mean, maybe to sort of, paint himself like he was concerned about his brother like he saw his brother's truck his brother wasn't around um and then went to check on his brother at his house and he wasn't there so maybe it was just like kind of optics sort of thing yeah it it is completely unnecessary actually really to mention other than noting that he drove by a second time and then archer you know still wasn't there and, and earl got that information but really it's only kind of in the story because Earl said it, and that was a nice thing that Earl did for Archer. Right, yeah. Unless it's just true. Could be true. Could be true also. And so then Earl traveled past Oakville about four miles to Garrard Road, which intercepts Brooklyn Road and drops Rosa off in an attempt to see if Archer would walk that way toward Oakville. So can you explain this a little bit, Jim? I just find this to be... Again, super bizarre about Earl and Rose's story. So coming back from those three towns that we mentioned, they're traveling south past Oakville, where there's the gas station. So about, I want to say, four miles from Oakville to Garrard Road to leave Rosa to see if Earl walked that way. Doesn't make any sense. And then he, Earl, doubled back to Oakville, putting another four miles on his truck um, to go get gas again. I mean, they were driving around a bit, according to their story, but they got gas twice this day. 
which I guess would make sense if you lived in a really remote place and you like you couldn't easily access gas and would have to travel you know close to 20 miles to do so but I just find it so strange that he doubled back to Oakville like why wouldn't they just stop on their way from Oakville get the gas and continue onto Brooklyn Road do you know what I'm saying yeah I believe so because nothing comes of Rosa standing (laughs) Like, what is she doing? She's just standing on a road waiting for Arch to come by. It doesn't make any sense why they would do this. So Earl just comes back from getting gas and picks Rosa up again, and they continue along Brooklyn Road. Okay, and, and she was there just to, just in case she saw Archer? I guess. Okay. All right, I got to put myself back in, you know, the mid-'80s when there were no cell phones and you had to do things like that. And Maybe that is a reasonable thing again day drinking making a decision that probably isn't the best decision but even thinking about it now like maybe it was a pretty good decision like you stand here and wait for him and i'll just in case because we don't want to miss him and and i'll do the uh the search with um my vehicle oh he wasn't searching he was going back to town to get gas oh i guess i misunderstood well that is weird i mean now it's weird (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is weird that he gets gas a couple times after, you know, whatever, traveling 25 miles or something like that. Um, how mu- I mean, obviously, we don't know, I take it, how much gas he put into his truck or maybe if that's true at all at this point. Yeah, but okay, so to go, according to his story, to go from Archer's house to Garrard Road to Oakville and back to Garrard Road would take about 25 to 35 minutes, which is like 15 miles. It would take approximately... 17 to 25 minutes to go from Archer's to Oakville to get gas and then to Garrard. So why would you take a route that goes extra miles if you already need gas? Good question. I, if you're looking for Archer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. But but was he going on the road? I mean, obviously he wasn't really traveling uh, in that direction apparently, huh? But they were gone all day running errands. Like, why would they think that Arch would be, wouldn't just get back in his truck and go elsewhere. Oh, I guess maybe they would intercept um, Arch's truck if he was going down that road. Yeah, if you stretch your imagination, it does like make a little bit of sense. But and so then, uh, once Earl picked up Rosa from Garrard Road, they uh, drove along Brooklyn Road to where they once again find Archer's truck in the same place it had been left earlier that morning. And Earl approximates this was around 5.30 p.m. Okay, good. That was my next question. Why or did they go back to the truck? Because the truck had keys in the ignition. He's driving all over the place. Maybe maybe go back to the truck and find out, you know, if, if Archer's made his way back there. Maybe even search the woods a little bit. Um and that time frame is uh, based on Earl's account, right, you said? That's right. And then there was this other witness that we mentioned, uh, Jameson. And so Jameson says that, uh, but he or she apparently didn't see the truck when they drove by between 5 and 6 p.m. Uh, on Brooklyn Road. Yeah, so this is not a totally damning thing like uh, Jameson's early uh, witnessing of the truck, but it does put it... like a sort of a tight fit between when Earl decided to move the truck. Like if he gets to the truck at 5.30, they search around the area, according to his statement, 
Arch doesn't respond in any way. Then he decides to move the truck. How many minutes was that? Like, if they got there at 5.30, say, at minimum they spent 10 minutes looking around the area for Arch. I guess that would put it in the window, but it's like 20 to 30 minutes that Jameson would have to pass by the area and not see the truck anymore. So I thought that it, it does fit in. It does fit into the timeline, but tightly. Man, this Jameson character is really throwing a monkey wrench into a timeline that could be pretty straightforward, I think. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Especially with that first sighting of the truck and, and seeing Earl traveling in the opposite direction to what his statement suggests. Okay, so then they decided to move the truck, Earl and Rosa. So they did this before they called police or anything, I take it? Yeah, yeah. Since the keys were in the ignition, they decided to uh, move the truck because I guess it was sort of sticking out in the road a bit, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Rosa drove Earl's car back and Earl drove Archer's truck back to his own property. Okay, and that's when Earl let Archer's wife, Pat, know that Archer was missing and apparently around 7.15 p.m.? Yeah, so apparently instead of calling, I'm not sure if they had a phone, but um, Earl and Rosa get back in their car and drive all the way back to Archer's house and his wife, Pat, Archer's wife. Um, the detective noted that Pat usually got home from work around 6.15 p.m., but this day she was an hour late to get home, which I think is an important thing to note, just in case. So they intercept Pat at her home that she shares with Archer to tell her that Archer's missing. I just have a quick question about the car, the Chevy Nova. Do you know what year that was? No, I don't. I I did try to find that information, but I think it was described as an older model. This was 86, so could be 60s, 70s, maybe even earlier. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Because they didn't have very good fuel efficiency. So if you could figure out somewhere along the lines of where he would get down to, you know, around empty on his tank, I think it was around 20 miles to the gallon but I, I'm not positive. Yeah, I did look up the specs on gas tanks on older model Chevy Novas, and yeah. it fluctuated. I think they like made a big change in the late 70s concerning their gas tanks. Like They became 22-gallon tanks, and before they were, I think, 7-gallon tanks. So there's no telling there. If he's driving a car with a 7-gallon tank, I can see him stopping for gas at least twice. Totally. Well, yeah. it's... But if he filled it up, not really. Um, but if he only put like five bucks in, yeah, pro- you know, he probably would have needed more gas. But, you know, some people do that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so then between 8 and 9 p.m., Earl and Pat called the Oakville Police Department twice and received no answer. Then they decided to call the Gray's Harbor Sheriff's Department. And that was apparently because where Archer's truck was abandoned, that was uh, straddled two counties, Grays Harbor and Pacific counties. So when you call the police department and there's no answer, there's no message machine? Maybe they did leave a message, but obviously they wanted somebody to respond immediately to like start searching for Archer because it got dark and it's the wilderness. 
And they did speak with somebody at Gray's Harbor Sheriff's Department. Yeah, they ended up, that department ended up taking lead on the case and they still um, are leads on the case to this day. But they received, they did receive help from Pacific County, like after the fact. Pacific County um, aided a lot in search and rescue subsequently. And is this the first time that there was an extensive search? They were connected with the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department and they were working with an Officer Smythe. They all went back around 10 o'clock to search the, the area where Archer's truck had been. Yeah. Yeah. So they, I think, got back to the area where the truck had been allegedly abandoned around 10 p.m. They searched for an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes, and then all decide to call it a night and come back with more resources in the morning. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.